0: Do you love NASCAR and all things racing? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Derek Cope. And I'm Alicia Cope. We are your hosts. And here on Race Theory, we
1: talk about all things asphalt racing. Our life on the road, maintaining good sponsor relationships, as well as balancing our work and family life as a team. Stick around,
0: and hopefully our tips and experiences will help you reach your own goals. Welcome back to episode four. Last time we, uh, we stopped here about 1988, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about what we're going to talk about later in the show, and that is, again, the next-gen car. We're going to readdress some things about the next-gen car and about something that you know looks like there's going to be possible changes to the next-gen car for 2023. We'll speak about that later. But 1988 was my first full season in NASCAR Winston Cup racing, and I was looking forward to it. It was ironic though, the, you know, the cars that we had, uh, Elmo Langley was an independent for a very long time, like Jimmy means and a number of the other guys. So these cars that we had was, it was in a Pontiac, Pontiac body style. And it basically was the Pontiac Grand Prix. And these cars were old cars. These were old, um, cars that Elmo Langley had. And, you know, the cars were, relatively antiquated. They, the bodies weren't great. Uh, so the equipment we had really was subpar. So we really wouldn't even enjoy, uh, you know, to the degree of what we did with the Fred Stoke car, We would not have that opportunity to have that kind of engine power. We did not have the cars that, you know, would perform that way. So it really was a different you know, a mindset going into the races. I, I had to serve my apprenticeship. I was getting to run full time. Uh, and you know, the option would have been out of sight, out of mind. So, you know, but which the, is not an option, which is not an option. And, you know, and again, we did not have a great deal of sponsorship, but we had a ticket to the dance and that's all we needed. So we were on the dance floor and, uh, we, uh, we're looking forward to it. And we just, you know, we ran the whole year and, you know, and just, you know, just, ran as good as we could run. And, you know, you just, uh, you fought hard every week and, you know, we, uh, we learned about how to make the cars, you know, better, you know, and, and Dave and everybody worked hard on the cars. We kept trying to refine what we had and, you know, um, just, you know, just, uh, did not really have the success that, uh, you know, you would, you would hope that we could have had. And we went into, um, the next year, which was 1980. And that was 88. And that year, 1988 was just, I guess, didn't have a great you know, year of racing. And then you know, tragedy struck as well. And that was the year that my mom died. I came home from Martinsville and I wasn't racing Martinsville. I was just up watching the event. We didn't run like every race. I think we we didn't have enough money to run every race, but we ran a, a few that we didn't run. And Martinsville, I don't think we we ran that race. And I came home. It's just hard to remember because everything was so foggy around that whole period of time. I could have actually ran the race and then came home. And I just didn't remember a whole lot about that, that week. When you
1: recall that year, you definitely have spaces. <clears> but <throat> when you experience an, an extreme... Um, you know, traumatic event such as that. Sometimes your mind does forget things. Yeah, I
0: just, you know, all the all that went on with my mom just kind of took And I don't remember, you know, a lot of what transpired. So I'm not sure. You know, we probably ran the race, and I just came home. But I remember, I remember coming home, and my sister uh, and her boyfriend were at the house, and um, I was at the condo. I had a condo on the south side of Charlotte, and um, I got a call from my brother. And um, you know, uh, you know, I Darren, you know, I knew when Darren called and I heard his voice that something was wrong and he said she's gone. And I said, What? He goes, She's gone.
1: And she was forty six.
0: Yeah, she was forty six years old. Yeah. Uh my mom, you know, obviously smoked profusely. <laughs> uh, my mom and dad both. But uh, you know, I just she had I had been home earlier in the year. And I had saw her, and she had a very, very bad cough. And I had begged her. I said, "You Mom, you really need to get that checked out." I said, "That does not sound good." Um, she was very, very thin. Um, she had gone through something. Um, you know, I think it was around the high school that we she ended up having. Or it was maybe just when before you were in high school. school. Yeah, mm-hmm. she had an aneurysm, and uh, she. Uh, I remember, I mean, I remember it emphatically, I mean, we were in the house and she was in the bedroom and lied down and had a headache. And then all of a sudden, you know, she just started screaming and she was in major pain and, you know, called the paramedics and they came and took her to the hospital. And she had, you know, the, you know, she had ruptured, you know, the, the, uh, the blood vessel had ruptured and the aneurysm. And so she was in dire straits and we really didn't know if she was going to live or not. And, um, she fought hard. I mean, she was a fighter. Little banny rooster, five foot, and you know, <laughs> five and, foot nothing. Yeah, and uh, she come out of it, but um it had um it had altered her uh, to a great degree. And,
1: well, they uh, say if you survive an aneurysm, fifty fifty, right? You'll if you even survive, and then if you do, that it a lot of times, more often than not, will often change your personality. Sometimes, very like to the extreme.
0: Yeah, and this was, I mean. It was, it, I remember going and seeing her and she, for the longest time when she come out of the hospital, she made it and came home and she was talking baby talk and just, you know, just very, very strange and very difficult time for our family and, uh, and for my father. And certainly, you know, she, um, and as, as she progressed, um you could tell that you know she obviously was not the same person i mean she ended up being you know the same you know loving mom and all that but she um everything was like it was like 180 degrees like before she was like a staunch pepsi drinker and then after the aneurysm she would only drink coke and you know we used to love having kids over and having you know kids around the house and everything and after the aneurysm did not want people around the house and then she felt like you know when she, you know, and she started, you know, thinking she was fat, I think. And she went on a, a deal where she just, she became anorexic. I mean, she was not, you know, she was just smoking and, and that was it. Right. And whatever, I don't know what else she wasn't eating. Right. Um, so when I went and saw her, she was extremely thin and had this bad cough. And I knew that, you know, she needed to get you know to address that. But, uh, but when I got the call, then obviously, you know, um, you know, her life changed and, uh, flew home for the funeral. And, um, you know, she was one of my major supporters. I mean, she loved racing. She was there at a lot of my races throughout the years. Um, and, you know, she, your
1: number one cheerleader,
0: my number one cheerleader. And, um, it was, you know, it was, it was a tough time. Um, you know, but you go back home. I mean, like you say, you go, or you go back home now is, you know, North Carolina and, you go back to what you do best and you just absorb yourself into racing and, um, get on with it. And, uh, so it was a, it was a tough go, did not really have a great year and all of that. And, you know, really just, um, I remember 88, you know, like I said, it was, it was just not what you had hoped it had been. So, you know, we're looking forward to, um, you know, 1989 with Pure Later and obviously we have a little more money in the contract for the next year. So, you know, changing things, you know, trying to get better, uh, and, you know, have some, you know, renewed optimism, right. To go to Daytona and, uh, end up going down there. And, uh, you know, obviously we had, you know, I'd made the races at Daytona for the two years prior. Right. You know, so, um, I'd made it with Stoke. I made it there with that car. And, and then 1989, we go to Daytona and, uh, we get wrecked in the one, uh, qualifying race and don't make the race. How are
1: you doing up to that point?
0: You know, I, I don't remember, uh, you know, it, it was just, you know, we were, you we had to finish in the top 14 and the 125s. You basically, that was the only way you get in if you didn't qualify and our cars were not fast enough to qualify on speed. So we had to get in on the, on the qualifier. So you had to finish in the top 14, uh, or if the pole sitter did not, uh, you know, finish the race, then in the top 15. So And we were running. I mean, I think we were doing okay. Uh, And then um, there was a wreck and we got caught up in it and uh, tore the car up and we did not make the Daytona 500. So here you are, you have a very tough year in 88, lose your mom and you run poorly and then you go to Daytona and you don't make the 500. So, you know, you've got later. I mean, you know, people.
1: Devastating for a sponsor. We've been in that situation Many times. And, uh, there is nothing more devastating than that. Yeah.
0: And, you know, you know how it is, right. You know, it's always difficult to, uh, you know, to tell them or explain why, you know, that they, how they could miss the Daytona 500 and
1: very easy to do.
0: So we went on and, you know, just started, you know, trying to run the rest of the year and just kept, you know, trying to dig out of a hole and get better. Um, but throughout the year, uh, you know, we weren't running, you know, you know, that great, um, still just, you know, a battle, uh, and, you know, through the year, uh, Jim test is f- starting to have some, some health issues. And I think financially, uh, the team was a, was a drain and we're trying to get better trying to, you know, and, and Jim's trying to, you know, put what he can in to get better. And basically, uh, says that he he's he has to quit so here we are we're sitting here with still sponsorship left in the till to come and jim you know is wanting to sell or get out from underneath this deal so during that year ron bouchard was driving for bob whitcomb and he they were they had run for rookie of the year and uh you know and and ron was doing a nice job uh, but they just you know they were not having any more success than we were and had no sponsorship. Uh, Bob Whitcomb was, you know, running it out of his pocket. And I think, you know, there were signs that, you know, they weren't going to be able to keep going, you know, you know, in that regard as well. I, um, I think Pat Patterson and I, I think we broached the subject with Bob Whitcomb to see if that, you know, we had this much money left for the sponsorship. would he you know, take Ron Bouchard or I'm sorry. Um, uh, you know, take the Bouchard out of the, out of the car and, uh, put me in the car and I would bring the sponsorship and we would run pure later on Bob would racing, uh, in the, for the rest of the remainder of the 89 season. And, uh, so that's, um, that's what happened. So, you know, uh, it took him out of the car and I got in the car and, uh, you know, it was a difficult situation for him, you know, and, uh, you know, you always feel bad. And, um, but you know, we, we had to do something and Bob needed to do something. So it was like, you know, a marriage made in heaven, right? Bob needed money and I needed a ride. And that's what we did. So we merged and they were in the old die guard building, the, uh, Back when uh, the gardeners had uh, the Gatorade car that uh, Daryl Waltrip drove and then Bobby Allison drove, and that was the old guard building on the backside of the Charlotte uh, Airport, and uh, not far from Holman Moody, where the original Holman Moody was at. So, just a lot of history mm-hmm. uh, in that building, and uh, you know that was, you know, another exciting aspect of that whole that whole dynamic, and so. You know, we get through, we get over there and, you know, we end up running the rest of the year and I put together, um, a, um, extension, uh, with Purelater, a three-year extension for 1990, 1991 and 1992. So, you know, now there's stability for Bob Whitcomb racing and Derek Hope. So it was really you know uh, a great time in the sport and renewed enthusiasm. you know Bob has some money, he's going to put money in. we have more sponsorship now uh, that we've elevated the uh, the sponsorship level again, and he brought
1: on some associates as well
0: yeah we had we had some associates as well, so we we had decent funding for really the first time uh in our existence and for a peer later, Carol Warner obviously in his first year would you know um they would let him go so i went through four presidents at pure later so carol was there no longer but i was still uh and then you know there was you know things going on with different presidents and you know they would you know go on to be purchased by penzoil and a lot of different things so a lot going on in the corporate world but i was still doing a lot of functions and activities and very much the uh the brand uh i you know um fixture. brand ambassador yeah mm-hmm. for the brand and uh, you know, and loving it. And here we get ready for, you know, 1990. And, you know, we talk to a crew chief uh, and try to bring in somebody of magnitude to take over this team and take us to the next level. And lo and behold, um, I know we, uh, I speak with uh, Buddy Parrott. And Buddy had kind of semi-retired and was kind of out of the sport and really didn't really have, you know, an inkling to come back. And we convinced him to, um, to come back. And, uh, Buddy took the job and came on board and, um, you know, come in and looked at everything we had and instantly went to work. And if you know Buddy Parrott, Buddy Parrott is a real motivator of people. I think that was probably the biggest thing that I think, you know, was the thing that stood out the most was that he was kind of an infectious guy. You know, he was bigger than life, big guy anyways. Mm -hmm. Right. But fit and was actually, you know, a tire changer on the actual team. I mean, but he, he motivated people. He, you know, he was funny. He was a character. um, And he just instilled confidence in everybody, all the young people we had working there. and he had a lot of connections and he went to um, Robert G and Robert G was hanging bodies and Robert G did a lot of stuff for Hendricks and a lot of people come from that whole L area up there up by the speedway at Charlotte motor speedway. And he had this small uh, building there and um, basically started to hang the new Chevy Lumina for the 1990 Daytona 500. And, If you know anything, you know, he's in there. I mean, Buddy was up there with Robert G, and they go way back. We had Robert G's son, Robbie, on our team. He has a crew member. And I mean, Buddy spent night and day up there working and massaging on that car and getting things done that he wanted to do. He draped the fenders, you know, he just tried to keep the car as slick as he could. He worked really hard to get the car as aerodynamic as he could. And he basically you know, brought this car back to the shop and here she is, you know, and, uh, that's when we went with the, uh, for the first time, we went with the rocket red day glow fluorescent red and the checkerboard on the car with the blue lettering, which was iconic. And to this day, it was probably one, you know, of the most recognized paint schemes, uh, you know, in Winston cup racing. And it was an exciting time. And we obviously, uh, were working on the motor program and that's where buddy went to work as well. And got a hold of Keith Dorden, automotive specialist in Concord, North Carolina. Randy Dorden was the head engine builder for Hendrick Motorsports. It was his brother. And this was the first year of the restrictor plate. So,
1: Really? 1990 was the first year of the think, restrictor plate? I think, I want
0: to say that it was, uh, I want to say that it, it may have been the year before, but it, I don't remember for sure. But I remember that we obviously had a restrictor plate and we had, and it might've been the year before, but. This was a year that, um, they were running, there was a lot of development work going on. Still very new. Very new. And there's a lot of work going on with the, uh, the, they're like what they called a cluster underneath the carburetor that went down in the manifold. And they basically was like, basically these short tubes that would direct, you know, the, uh, the air and the fuel down in the plenum of the manifold. And basically, you know, you, the carburetor, you get a, the manifold gets a signal uh, from the carburetor and, you know, atomizing the fuel. And basically, you know, it was a way to direct the fuel and it made the, you know, the motors more proficient. And I think that, you know, Keith probably got a little bit of insight from Randy Dorton, from Hendricks, you know, that this is kind of what he should be looking to try to do. And he come up with his own cluster and worked on things and, and, you know, and did the motor for us. And, um, it's, uh, well, here we are, we're getting ready to take, you know, Keith Dorton's motor, uh, to Daytona. And we have a deal with Hendricks to run Hendrick motors for X amount of races, not enough money to run all the races, but I think we had maybe enough to do 10, mo- 10 races. And then, uh, we also had hired later on, we hired, uh, Lloyd McCleary back to come in house and do engines there. Um, so, you know, went, got ready, and we just kept working to try to get ready to go to Daytona Beach. Uh, Richie Gilmore was our engine tuner, uh, and Richie Gilmore, uh, his claim to fame now, obviously, is he manages ECR for uh, Richard Childress. He is the head guy at uh, ECR Engines, Earnhardt Childress Engines, and, you know, has, was at DEI with Dale Earnhardt. So, very prominent engine, you know, builder and, and run the engine programs, and he was with me uh, as our engine tuner when I won Daytona and
1: uh, yeah, he uh, he's had many a a dinner with us where he recalls those were some of the, the best days um, in his early racing career as well. Yeah. He's a great guy. He's uh, got his signature there on uh, looking at the, the Daytona 500 flag with all of the signatures on it from everyone from your crew and uh, see Richie Gilmore there right in the middle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good friends. And uh, to this day, uh, you know, obviously there's a bond there, and uh, you know um, we obviously discussed those times a lot. You know, when we we're together, right, over wine, and uh, but yeah, <laughs> lots that, of wine, lots of wine, cooler. yeah. So, but we, uh, you know, we we're reading ourselves for uh, the 1990 Daytona 500. You know, and then a unique time in the sport. Not a lot of people probably, you know, know this or know that this is really, you know, the time frame. But that was the, the filming of the Days of Thunder movie. That was the year that uh, basically Tom Cruise and uh, Nicole Kidman and all of them are at Daytona and they're doing a lot of the, uh, the filming and a lot of the work for, for that. So if you, if you look at, The days of thunder. You'll see all the footage. You'll see the purulator in there. Our guys, our crew guys, in there. A lot of the footage. Yes, our daughter
1: Zoe knows exactly where all the Later shots are at. If you watch that movie with her,
0: yeah. And you know all the, you know all the sequences there. You know are that actual race of the 1990 Daytona 500. And you know, you know, it was ironic because they actually put those two cars um, in the back of the pack and start the race. And uh, you know, it's um. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it was an exciting time for that to happen. You know I mean? You know, and you know, for us, we go out and, um, we get to the racetrack and we have a very fast race car. We are, you know, one of the only cars that really could deal with Dale Earnhardt, uh, in practice. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know happy hour, I mean, I passed Dale and, you know, I knew we, we were going to be a factor. I didn't have a lot of experience to draw from, but I knew the car was capable of, uh, of winning the Daytona 500. And I actually, you know, had conversations with my dad and my brother. And I, you know, used to call my dad every night after practice and give him the lowdown on what's going on. And I did that throughout my, my career. Um, and, you know, he just, you know, thrived on hearing the – intricacies of what was going on on a daily basis. And, you know, I really enjoyed my time calling him every night, you know, from the racetrack and discussing what was going on and, you know, my thoughts. And, uh, we were very close in that regard. And. But the conversation with your <clears throat> brother, Darren, Yeah. that was I, poignant. It was. I mean, I, I talked to Darren and, uh, you know, and, <laughs> you know, I told Darren, I said, uh, he, I said, you know something? I said, I know this is going to sound crazy. But I said, if I can just stay out of trouble, I can win the Daytona 500. I said this car is that good, <clears throat> and he was, no shit. <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah. I said it. I said I just gotta, I just gotta stay out of trouble. I said, I mean the car is good enough, and I said the car was fast. It's been fast, and you know just can't make any mistakes. Sure enough, uh, that was really <clears throat> the just of the day. You know, I remember, you know. Well, I think Richie and them. I think we, I, you know, we talked to Richie. You know, not long ago, right? And you know, he had said that you know didn't know if I remembered that they had actually taken the engine back, the engine out after the one twenty five race, right? Where you know we had finished sixth in the one twenty five, and we're really fast, and we just took care of the car, and so we were going to start twelfth in the uh, five hundred, and they took the engine back and went through the motor, you know, back at Keith's shop and brought it, but freshened it up just so it was fresh, you know, and, uh, you know, brought it back. I didn't back.
1: know you could actually do that.
0: Oh yeah. They took it, they took it out right off the one twenty-five. they took it up there and they freshened the thing up, double checked everything and brought it back. And that was, that was the piece. And, um, you know, we got ready to, uh, you know, to get ready for the race. And I remember that morning, uh, there was just a, a calmness, you know, that really had come over me, and I, and I, I had spoken to Dave Despain, who was doing the commentary work there, right the pits, and Dave Despain had come up to me and interviewed me and asked me what you know what I thought, and you know, I said uh, I feel really confident about the car, and I just it's just a matter of getting to the end of this thing, you know. Buddy and I have spoken about this thing, and um, you know, I'll tell you a story that uh, you know, Buddy. And I a conversation that Buddy and I had, and I I relayed that to, uh, to Dave Despain, you know, and, and Buddy and I had conversations, and Buddy told me, he said, look, he said, I want you to be as close to Dale Earnhardt as possible. He said, you know, if he scratches his, you know, his back, you scratch your back. <laughs> if he picks his nose, you pick, you pick your nose. He <laughs> said, he said, I want you to follow, he goes in the bathroom. Being close enough to know he's picking his he nose. He said, he said, follow him in the bathroom, you follow him in the bathroom. He said, I want you to just, I mean, I want you to do everything that he does, you know, and we are going to stick as close to him as possible. And he said, you know, um, we are going to, you know, run this race in a manner that we are going to take care of this race car. We pedal this thing. You do what you got to do to keep the car underneath you. Get to the end. There'll be a caution late in this race. We'll have a shot to win this thing. But he says, you just got to take care of it. He says, you do that you'll get your shot. You know, so, you know, you don't really know how prophetic those words were and what he had said. And uh, so, you know, I, I knew what, what my job was and, you know, you get ready to start the race and, you know, there's a lot of hoopla going on with the days of thunder thing. And, you know, you got, you know, all those movie stars walking around their film crews everywhere, right? And they're starting the deal. And, you know, there's a lot of scuttlebutt about, you know, drivers meeting about those cars and when they're going to pull in and all that, you know, but it's, you know, it's a substantial major motion picture and it's going to be huge for the sport. And obviously it was, I think it really elevated the notoriety of NASCAR Winston Cup racing at that time. Well,
1: that's when I first, uh, noticed NASCAR being in, in high school at the time and, um, that really was the height of NASCAR um, attendance. I, I can only imagine the amount of people you had swarming along with
0: Hollywood. Yeah. And- we were averaging over 190,000 people per event, and that's 36 weekends a year. And that's twice what a Super Bowl is, magnitude events, 36 weekends a year, major, major amount of attendance, right? And then the actual, you know, viewership on television as well. Yeah, so astounding. It was. It really was a very unique time in the sport and here we are you know we are on the cusp of getting ready to start the daytona 500 you know i'm starting 12th you know outside and uh sixth row and got to date you know get this thing started and i remember you know how good the car was immediately i mean the car just you know took off and um you know, the car was, you know, on the free side most of the day and, uh, but, you know, the car was very aerodynamic, Buddy had done all the things that it took for the car to, you know, to really be aerodynamic. And, uh, you know, we, we, we just kind of marched our way right up to the front. You know what I mean? In no time we were eighth and in no time we were fifth. And then we stayed in the top five and, you know, worked our way up, you know, to the front.
1: And, and that's and, really what a lot of people, a lot of the naysayers, the, the Dale Earnhardt fans out there, um you know, think that, you know, those that, um, mistakenly say you, it was a fluke or you fell into it. You worked your way to the front and you were at the front the whole day. You were not a back marker car waiting for a 15 car pileup. You were always at the front all day long.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think Dale, certainly Dale drove wide open pretty much the whole day. I pedaled the car, I took care of the car, but we ran the top, you know, five, top two, top three right there all day long and really just took care of the car. And, you know, obviously he was out front a long ways, but you know, when the cautions come, you know, you close this back up. But, you know, Buddy kept saying, you know, just just stick to the game plan, right? Just take care of this thing, right? You know, we're 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 gonna be there, you know. And pretty much we go the whole day and um, you know, get towards the end of the race and uh, you know, this thing's loose. And I you know, I remember you know, coming in and, you know, buddy, uh, we make that one, we're making a, a, last, uh, which would be our last pit stop. Uh, ultimately there were probably, you know, there's still enough laps. There would probably be another, another caution or something. Right. But you know, for, for buddy, um, this was buddy's last pit stop. And I remember telling him, you know, this, this thing's loose. You know, we need to tighten this thing as I was having to pedal the thing and I was having to run the high side of the racetrack just to give the car its head, you know, getting in the corner. Cause I was pretty free, especially with somebody behind me. And so I come in the pits and, you know, we, uh, we came in with Earnhardt most of the time when Earnhardt came in. I mean, like I said, we, when Buddy told me I had to go to the bathroom with uh, Earnhardt, well, I had to come down pit road with Earnhardt. And uh, we were doing everything we could to stay in tune and come down and change tires. And I remember coming in and we uh, doing our pit stop. Of course, you know, Buddy changed tires. And Buddy's over the yeah, wall. Yeah, can you
1: imagine a, yeah, a, a crew, crew chief, chief now, jumping right? down off? The
0: but gun, I mean, the he was fast doing that. He was fast. He jumps over there. He's changing tires. The guys pull the stop off, and all of a sudden, I, I look in the mirror, and I'm expecting this thing to get tightened up. And Buddy goes back, and he's knocking the spoiler down, not pushing it up, making
1: you loose, knocking
0: the spoiler down. I'm thinking to myself, self, <laughs> you know. And I mean, you know, you're just in total disbelief, right? And then you take off because I mean, there's. You know, there's no time. Once that thing hits, the the jack hits, you're off and running. He's back there beating the spoiler as I'm driving away. He's still beating on it. And off I go. And, you know, so we run that deal and keep digging. The car's free. And then the caution comes out. And I mean, I think there's what, maybe 13 laps to go or something like that. I think maybe 11 by the time we get through the caution period, right? We stay out. And everybody else comes in for tires, including Earnhardt. And I'm like a sitting duck sitting out there with, you know, old tires. You're probably
1: thinking, what are they thinking?
0: You know, and, uh, you know, you know, buddy, you know, the, uh, you know, the eternal optimist, right. He's like, you hang in there. He said, we got these guys. He said, you know what he said, this is the, this is your time. You know, this is the time. This is exactly what I told you was going to happen. It's here for the taking. And he says, you just have to, you know, you got a man up. This is it. Right. And, uh, I think we had Bobby Hillen right there that I had to dispose of first. I can't remember, you know, at this point, but you know, I remember we took off and I managed to dispose of him, but here comes Earnhardt. And, um, you know, you got, you know, you got Bill Elliott back there. You got Terry Labonte back there. Right. And I finally get freed up of Hillen, and here comes Earnhardt and, you know, Earnhardt, you know, gets a run at me and goes by me on the bottom. And then here comes Jeff Bodine, who's a lap down. And, he drives to try to drive underneath me. Right. So I got to pack a bunch of air on him, trying to slow him down to try to discard him. Cause he's not even in the, you know, and I got to get rid of him. I can't have him in between me. So I just packed a bunch of air on him and i managed to discard him. And then, uh, you know, Earnhardt was out there a few car, I'm like five, six car lengths. Right. And here I come. And I'm, and I mean, I, when I left, I mean, I was flat on the mat and I said, I am not lifting the rest of this race and this thing's loose. And here comes and old tires. Old tires, and Earnhardt sitting on new ones, you know. And you know, a lot of people don't really know that, right? And here comes Labonte, and here comes Elliot, right? And
1: Labonte would later say in interviews that he would he should have won um, when uh, Earnhardt had the the tire cut down. And but you have said many times that you didn't think Labonte had anything for you that day.
0: They didn't. I knew they didn't. I mean, they tried me. I, I they worked together. Elliot and Terry, I mean, they were nose to tail. They backed up. They put a run on me on the back straightaway. And I mean, they tried to pull out and go by me and they had nothing for me. They had to pull back in line. And I knew then that it was just Earnhardt and I. And at that point, I was trying to back up to them and trying to help me get a run with them. And then I would be on Dale, on Dale's back bumper going in turn one, every lap. I was so loose though, with those guys behind me. I just start chasing the car up the racetrack. I never lifted, but I drove that thing turn to the right more than I turned it left. <laughs> and I was driving to the top of the racetrack, just hanging on to this thing. Right. And this thing's in yaw the whole time. And I would just lose a little, you know, a couple car lengths, you know, and then by the time I got back, you know, this thing would get a run. And by the time I'd be back going in turn one, I'd be right on his bumper again. I was thinking, what am I going to do? Right. I am going to find a way by this guy and just keep digging. And sure enough, you know, I mean, Just. I mean, you're on kill, you know, I mean, you know, you're just, you're driving this thing for everything it's worth, right? This is the Daytona 500 and you got a shot to win this thing. And Dale can't go nowhere. He's got new tires on, he's driving the bottom and I'm having to drive up the racetrack because this thing's so loose, right? And I'm thinking, you know, he's got new tires and I mean. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing here. And I know that's just going to be him and I. So I keep moving up the racetrack. And then pretty soon I start seeing Dale move up the racetrack, just starting to cover the spot. He knows that I'm going to go to the outside. He does not want me to get a run off the high side because I'm on his bumper every lap going in turn one. And he knows that if I could just get through or get on the bottom or if I could pinch the thing down, but I I know that I'm only going to be able to do that one lap or two. And, uh, so I keep working the high side and, here he goes. I mean, he keeps start inching up and inching up. I say, yeah, you just keep coming. And here we go. We get going more, and then gets down like the last lap. And I mean, I have, uh, I mean, I have got a run at Dale, and I go down in turn one. And I mean, I got a run going off, you know, through the tri oval, and I'm all over him going in turn one. I mean, right to the back bumper, and this thing gets loose. And I mean, I had to turn right big time, and I chase the thing up the racetrack. And I mean, it is. It's it's dead lose, and I I lose maybe three four car lanes and I and I get off the high side pretty good though and I got a lot of momentum off there and here comes the Bonnie and those guys and this thing I can just feel this thing she's starting to mount a charge you know she's getting a bunch of energy and I can feel this thing getting up on her haunches and she's starting to run and I get a run and I'm starting to you know close in down the back stretch trying to get ready to go down in turn three and all of a sudden. We just kind of turn off in the bottom. And I've said, I'm going to the bottom and I don't care. I'm going to pinch this thing down. And I mean, I will have both hands, you know, in my crotch on this thing and I'm going (laughs) left and I'm not going to the high side of this thing, you know, so. Last chance to do it. Last chance to do it. It's got, you've got to like, you know, you just got to hang on. And I drive this thing off into the bottom in turn three. And all of a sudden I see him backing up to me. And I mean, he's backing up and. I got such a run, and I'm on the bottom, and I got fistfuls of this thing, you know. And I won't, I'm not, I'm going in, you know, and I just think we're going to wreck. You know, he's backing up to me, and there is nothing I can do. I am committed to the bottom, and all of a sudden, his car wiggles, and he moves straight up and out of out of my way, and I drive right by him. And I look back in the mirror, and I see Labani and Elliot back there. I mean, they're like four car lengths, five car lengths behind me, and clear sailing. And I said, just don't lift, get this thing off of four. And this thing's yours. And sure enough, come off of four. I look back, here comes Labani and Elliot, but they ain't got nothing for me. And I just blocked to the bottom and drove off and crossed the start finish line. And it was total pandemonium. I mean, the guys are screaming, you know, everybody's just on the radio and I'm just quiet. And, you know, and I just, I just trying to get a breath. I think I probably held my breath, you know, for the last four or five laps it feels like right and i'm just trying to just in belief total disbelief right and what's the first thing that came to your mind when you knew you had won you know all the screaming on the radio but i I think the first thing that came to mind was you know was dad um you know we we had worked for 10 years this was a 10-year deal from 1980 to 1990 and you know, we had started this thing together. It was a plan that we had made and it had come to fruition. And I just started thinking about him and, you know, reflecting on what we'd done. And then I knew that, you know, I had to gather my senses and, you know, my dad would, you know, the only thing he would be wanting me to do is get out of this race car and represent the sponsor well and, you know, be the class act and, um, you know, make sure I did my part out of the race car, which is what, you know, he would, would want. And, um, I dropped the window net and I just coasted down the back straightaway. And you know, everybody's coming by and you know, giving the high fives and all the stuff there and waving their hands out the window. And I had the window down and I stuck my arm out and I went through turn three and four and I put my hand out and put up the number one and, mm-hmm. and you know, I just drove through there and you know, there was no not they do now right there was no burnouts there was none of that and just come down you know pit road. We well, didn't even
1: know where. Victory Lane was. Yeah. That was the funny part. And yeah. I think it was even uh um kind of reiterated in Days of Thunder um on the radio. You you <laughs> ask Buddy, I don't know where Victory Lane is.
0: <laughs> yeah, he I think he was doing a, an, an interview, interview on, the the, on the time, you know. And uh but yeah, I was coming down Pit Road, you know, and you know, I had never even, you know, taken a look, you know, down Pit Road where Victory Lane was, you know. And uh, sure enough, I come down there and I said, uh buddy, I said, uh, where's, where's victory lane? <laughs> he said, just keep coming, baby. You know? And, uh, you know, I get down there and, um, you know, obviously he's telling him, I didn't know where victory lane was, you know? So, uh, but I get close to the, you know, the entrance into victory lane and, and guess who jumps on the back of the deck lid? Teeny. Teeny. Teeny jumps on the back and rides into victory lane. And, um, you know, um, it was a great, a great moment to drive into victory lane and, uh, get out of that car and, um, Larry Belewski's there and, you know, all the rest of the guys, you know, and, you know, you, you're telling you to, you wait and wait and wait. And then, you know, you get ready and now, and then you get the hat on and you get out and you stand on the ledge of the door and, you know, you got two fists in the air and it's just, uh, a perfect moment moment in time. And I mean, really, I mean, you think about it and it was 10 years to go from, you know, nothing when everybody thought that you wouldn't amount to anything to winning the biggest thing that could happen to you in stock car racing and, uh, you know, to reach the pinnacle and, you know, to get out of there and, you know, do the interviews and all of that. And, you know, I mean, just the, I mean, it was, I can, like I've told you many times, I can still close my eyes and just get back to that moment and just feel the warmth of the sun on your face and just the, you know, just take it all in and absorb it, you know, and go through the hat deal there, you know, with all the hats and all the pictures and, you know, they, the whole, whole you know, they're hoisting you up and, you know, all the, all the stuff. And yeah, just, a. A really special moment. And, I wish
1: yeah. our listeners could see your face right now, and mine too, because I have heard this story. Of course, all of the interviews throughout the years, they always want you to talk about the Daytona 500. Yeah. And even though it's like, well, I've heard this before, I've heard this before, it doesn't really get old. But although I do wish they would talk about the other wins that you had as well, but to hear you relate this story even now, right now the smile on your face and the tears in your eyes and the smile on my face, it is truly um, a story that never ceases to amaze me. And the persistence and the diligence and the constant consistency that it took for you to reach that point um, just makes me respect you um, all the more. And, uh, you truly are, um, an amazing individual in many, many ways. But I think that particular day, everything that you had worked for with your dad and all of the things that you had gone through and the character that you'd been, you know, had built along the way, um, you deserved that, that was yours you uh didn't back into it it was not given to you you deserved that win and uh and I'm just uh I'm just so proud of you and and always proud to say you know my husband is a Daytona 500 winner
0: well you know it really you know I my father instilled a work ethic um you know of you know putting everything uh of your being into it and you know I think that really was you know probably a determining factor i mean that you just you go through trials and tribulations and you have to put every ounce of effort into it and you know um we were able to to have you know have have it happen you know and then you go upstairs and you go to the unical suite and you toast champagne and you know you talk to all the folks and all the media and stuff and then you come down and you know there's nobody there but your transporter everybody's gone That is that long of an ordeal and i come back down there and there's george colwell With the old transporter, and you know, he hands me my clothes and then he takes off to go to the party. And uh, you know, I I changed my clothes and at that point we headed to the the party at the beach. And uh that was it. So um, you know, we'll stop there. Uh certainly uh great place to stop. Great place to stop. Yeah, there's a lot more to come, but uh let's dive into a little bit about um, the next gen car we were, we talked about that on the last episode about, you know, some of the, the problems with the car and the concussions and all the things that's going on. But, you know, there's a lot of, uh, things, other things that the car has had troubles with and, you know, NASCAR has worked diligently to overcome those, but you know, in the, in the beginning, um, there was such a, a heat problem, right? I and remember
1: uh, when you first started building those cars, that was the other thing. Um, not just the, uh, crash panels and and that hurting the drivers, but the first thing that y'all mentioned was there's no place for the air to go under this hood. This is going to be very hot. Yeah.
0: It was, I know that when, you know, guys tested it, that test at Daytona, which was the first Daytona test, you know, they were so hot. They couldn't run but 20 laps and they felt like their toenails were burning off. It was just that, just, you know, I mean that hot. And, you know, they've obviously since then, you know, they've worked hard and, uh, you got to give them credit. You know, they've made concessions and things in the cars and, you know, slits in the windows and different things and have tried to get, you know, where the car was, you know, more tolerant, you know, of, uh, of the drivers for the drivers. And, uh, you know, so it seems like that they've been able to, uh, to get that, you know, somewhat, uh, rectified and, uh, to the point now where they're, but they're still having a lot of problems with, you know, no air gaps, no places and you know, the things catch on fire, and you well, know. you
1: see a lot of fire um, when they're take when the they're showing the pit crew taking the the tires off on the pit stops. You see a lot more fire coming out of those areas. That I mean, I, I sat in you know in the uh, pit box for years and and never saw that type of consistent fire coming out of that area. Is that something that you think is a, a product of the next year? Well, again, not it's having just, the air?
0: there's just no air, right? I mean, it's just, everything's sealed up, right? And there's just nowhere for anything to go for all that heat is just there. And when there's rubber gets in there or things catch on, you know, and they catch fire and there's just no, and there's no way to get to them. That's why the cars would physically burn up because you can't hardly even get an extinguisher in there to get to it, to, uh, to, to, you know, extinguish the fire. So a lot of problems. Right. And you continue to see those things, you know, but they are becoming, you know, more minimal, I think right now, you know, they are not really happening as much. So that's a good thing. Right. Um, but you know, again, the car itself, you know, has had pretty good racing and you've, and they're a difficult, Absolutely. they're a difficult car to drive, you know, from what I understand. And, you know, by watching the guys, I mean, you, you can see it, a lot of great race car drivers are spinning out and having problems, you know, and the cars are symmetrical. So there's no more, you know, real, a lot of side force on the right rear to lean against, you know, the cars, you know, straight up and, you know, so you're doing every little thing you can and, you know, it's got a rack in it and that thing's a little bit, you know, edgy at times. So, you know, the car has got independent front rear suspension. So, I mean, it's, it is a different animal than what we're really accustomed to driving. Right. So, um, but from what I'm hearing, is that you know there are there are you know the the chances that there's going to be some major development and changes for next year with the car. So I am sure that they're going to uh, probably go you know towards the front and rear clip and make some adjustments there to make the car you know maybe crush more and then do some things make some adjustments on the on the center section uh, as well uh, to try to see if they can figure out a way uh, to alleviate so much of the energy, you know, going in from the car to the driver. So, um, it's a daunting task. And I know that they're working, you know, every engineer they've got is, is trying to do something to try to rectify this, you know, so you have to give them, give them credit. Uh, there's no give up in them. Right. But they know, then they realize that they have a problem. They have to address it. And, uh, you know, a lot of these guys are very vocal I mean, you look at like Harvick and some of those guys, I mean, they are very, very vocal and you didn't used to hear, see that or hear that, you know, nobody would ever speak up or say those types of things. But I think they're, they're on the cusp of, of this becoming, you know, a major problem and, um, they're going to have to make some, some changes. Something's going to have to be done, you know, to be in a position where they do not hurt these drivers because they can't keep ending these guys' careers or, you know, taking, the stars out of the event it's tough on sponsors it's tough on the fans and it's tough on the car owners i mean it is just a dynamic that we just can't have in the sport so you know we'll wait and see winter's coming uh you know a few more races to go this year and a championship to be settled but um you know we'll uh, we'll see what happens yep so i appreciate you listening uh look forward to uh the next episode and uh We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Yep. We've got some great things coming up for the next one. So see y'all soon. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope 00 and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory.
0: We can't wait to hear from you. See
1: you on the next episode.